Ladies and gentlemen, it is showtime. Please welcome the team of the Fulhamish Podcast. It's the Fulhamish Podcast, your independent voice of Fulham SC. My name's Sammy James. Welcome to the show. Today, it's a little bit of a state of the union, a state of the football club after the weekend's events. A transfer deadline day that was hectic and, to be honest, a little bit depressing. Uh, A 5-1 defeat at Manchester City featuring a horrific VAR call and the death of our former chairman, Mohamed Al-Fayed. And I'm joined on the Thursday Club today by Jack Collins. Hello. Hello, mate. Hello, listeners. How are we doing? Good, thank you. It's been quite the few days for Fulham. Yes. And whilst Sunday's podcast, I feel like, was recorded in the heat of the moment, we had a few days to, to, to sit on it, to think about it. And today, Jack, uh, we're going to kind of look through everything that's going on. And I've also got a stack of emails for us to go to. In part two as well, we have a special interview with Greg Crutwell. He's a Fulham fan and a former Hollywood actor who has released a new podcast called Hollywood and Fulham. His memoirs charting his two loves, his uh, life in Tinseltown and his love of Fulham FC. Um, All episodes are out now. It's a really fun, different listen. And um, uh, we're speaking to Craig in part two all about that. But Jack, let's um, let's do transfer deadline day first. Um, It was a a, a weird day. Polinia's move to Bayern that never happened. Alex Awobi. Fodi Balintore through the door, but not enough. And a real debate in the fan base at the moment about the future of the club, where we go from here. And there are people on both sides. There are people saying that, was the window really that bad? There's also a lot of people saying, yes, it was. We need change now. Where do you stand? I think that, you know, we spoke at the start of the summer about the idea that standing still in the Premier League was going backwards. And whilst there have been many wins, I think that the signings of Kevin Bassey and Alex Wobi are good signings. And I'm, I'm, I'm pleased with those two players through the door. I think that ultimately you have to look at this Fulham team and say, are we in a better or shape, worse shape than we were at the start of last season? And I think the answer is that we've slightly gone backwards. And that is not a good place to be when we were saying that you know, as you say, stasis is is paralysis. We're looking for the club to continue to move forward. I think this was a real opportunity. Fulham were safe, secure by March, if not February last year. And Mm. there was so much time to plan for a summer which should have seen Fulham be able to start a platform and use that to kick on. Now, I think it's easy to look at it and say that transfer windows are easy. And they're not. And I know that from you know what has been discussed around the summer and discussions with people in and around the football club that there are there were lots of targets who have gone to bigger and better things, if you will, in terms of looking at Champions League level players who ultimately moved around to different level clubs. But I also think that when you look at what's happened in this transfer market across Europe and some of the players that have moved for pretty reasonable fees, as far as I'm concerned, that there have been some major missed opportunities in this market where players have have gone to clubs and you're thinking, 
Okay, could we have could we have nicked someone who was off to Bologna? I'm not asking Fulham to to nick someone who's off to Manchester United. I think we saw with the Sofian Amrabat deal at the end of the window where Fulham put the money on the table and he was like, nope, I only want to go to Manchester United. You can understand that from a player's perspective. And I can understand Polina's desire to go to Bayern Munich. I don't think that's up for debate, really. That, that makes sense in the grander scheme of things. But when you look at those kind of players like Amrabat and you think, okay, Fulham have gone in for him on the final day of the window. He's been sitting there for three months. And, and whilst obviously the Polina thing kind of came out of the blue, there should be an element of forward planning, I think. And I've been talking about this all summer. And I feel like we've really just missed a major opportunity to, to be able to build onwards in a transfer market that whilst was dominated in terms of headlines by Chelsea breaking transfer record after transfer record, there was value in this market as well. And I feel like we've missed out on some players... You know, just to, to spitball one off the top of my head, Jesper Carlson, who's someone that I linked with Fulham back in March, is basically a Willian Regen. You know, he, he plays a very similar style of football. He went to Bologna from RZ Alkmaar for approximately 15 million euros. The fact that Fulham haven't looked at that as a, a player in terms of that profile and what he offers, and seeing coming off that left-hand flank, cutting onto the right foot, making things happen, a little bit of a 10 playing wide. I just don't understand why there was never any sort of, even a link to, to that kind of player when Fulham have been shopping in those kind of departments on the pitch. And all of that to me just suggests that there have been missed opportunities absolutely everywhere. I think what's interesting is this notion about Fulham being a deadline day club. And actually... You look at last summer transfer window and we were all really delighted with what happened last summer. There were some really smart moves that were made. Obviously, Zhao took the headlines, but Andreas from, from Manchester United, bringing in Bernd Leno, bringing in Willian, bringing in Isa Diop. These are all signings that actually weren't done on deadline day. If you look at last year's yeah. deadline day deals, they weren't particularly great. Dan James, Carlos Vinicius, I think maybe Kazawa came in on deadline day last year did, as, yeah. as well. And so I kind of wonder why Fulham are still pursuing with the deadline day strategy. You clearly heard it from Silver that he doesn't want deals to be done and left to the last minute. There have been successes down the years, but I just wonder now that I didn't really see many clubs getting great value or any kind of great players on deadline day. Sure, there are a few exceptions. But I don't know, it, it feels weird that Fulham are pinning so much on a final day where it, it doesn't feel like years gone by where actually there seems to be tons of movement. It seems to be very hard to do deals on the final day of the window because clubs are conscious that they can't get in replacements. Mm. Yeah, I, I just it, it's such a strange place to be. And look, I actually think that the problem with the Polina thing was that actually it covered up a whole load more of other situations that were going on at the same time and look we're obviously hearing different things from different places and there are words that the Marcus Silva didn't want another striker I don't buy it I don't buy it I, I can't see I can I can understand him saying I don't want any old striker but I can't see especially with the rumored fallout with him and Carlos Vinicius um, the fact that Rodrigo Muniz who struggled in the championship with Middlesbrough last season appears right now to be Fulham's second choice number nine option. I think Vinicius, if he doesn't go, will reclaim that spot. But 
the fact that he, you know, that he started in that game against Tottenham where he did well and we spoke about it and, you know, fair play to him because he worked incredibly hard. But I just think that when you have that kind of Mitrovic money that's come through the door and the fact that that wasn't replaced, I, th- I think we're still short. Well, I, I thought we were going to be short centre-back in, in terms of where Tosin was because clearly he felt like he wanted to leave the club and instead now he's here for at least another six months knowing, and we know that he, he kind of doesn't really want to be here. He wanted to make that move this summer and Fulham didn't get that deal done and go and sign a replacement. It all just feels like it's been done last minute. Like there are band-aids over things and, and that's the worry for me. And the fact that Polina stayed and look, I'm delighted, absolutely delighted he's still at the club. Obviously, I think Sravelinia is one of the best players I've ever seen in a Fulham shirt. But the fact that it got to that kind of point and then it was like, oh, we've kept Polina. We don't need to worry about the other things. And then Awobi and Balatore come in at you know midnight, one in the morning. All of it just felt like it was kind of done in haste. And I think that that's the, the worrying thing for me because... Actually, if Fulham had been thinking about this and the idea that, you know, the first offers or reported interest in Joao Polina happened in June and Fulham didn't go out and not sign a replacement because obviously that's incredibly difficult, but at least have a, a backup option who can come in in this window, maybe take a year to get used to things. Maybe you get a younger player, Santiago Hetzer from uh, Huracan, I thought was a very interesting deal on the table that Olympiacos ultimately got the better of in the end. There are players out there who you could go, right, there's a 21-year-old incredible defensive midfielder talent out there. He's gone to Olympiacos, so it's clearly not, oh, I really need a crack at the big time with a huge club. These are players who are on the market, are available, who have moved this summer for reasonable fees, and if you could have someone like that in, who you could bring in for a year, bed in, Leicester used to be really good at this before they lost their way in the transfer market, bed in and kind of red shirt, and to use an American term, for a year, allowing them to get used to the club, get used to the way that the, the Silver wants to play and slowly have them in so that next summer, because I don't know about how you feel about this, but from everything I'm hearing, Bayern are going to come back in for Joao Polina. And if they don't, then somebody else is. Because I think that the obvious attraction to a top club here has now already been put on the table. And I still worry about the succession plan there. If Fulham had brought someone in here in this window, and I talked about Tyler Adams at 20 million, people saying that 20 million is too much for a backup. It is and it isn't. Because actually, I think that you rotate that player into the squad and suddenly it doesn't all look so absolutely dreadful and everyone's not fighting each other within the boundaries of things over Polinia if you've already thought this through and planned forward. And ultimately, that's what I'm most worried about in terms of club right now. And, and look, nobody is, no, nobody's absolved from blame here, really. I, I, I don't think that, you know, all, everyone, no one comes up with a clean slate. Marco has spoken, yes, about wanting players earlier in the window. He also has reportedly targeted lots of players over the age of 30. That worries me. I've talked about squad profile and I understand the concept of what people are saying about the fact that when you're talking about squads, he wants players who he is trusts, who have experience, and that's fine. But if Marco leaves next year, two years' time, three years' mm-hmm. time even, it leaves the club in a pretty similar position to where we were at the end of that Martin Yol tenure with an aging squad that can't be sold on for any sort of resale value and going 
into a slide backwards that if relegation was to happen, it puts you in a terrible position. Look at Southampton. They were dreadful last year, right? We can all agree on that. But this summer, they've made almost 200 million selling off talents because last year they thought about it and bought smartly in terms of bringing in young players who they know that even if they have a bad season, there's going to be markup value on those players because of the talent they possess. And I'm concerned that we're going down a path. There is no one good, you know, there's no one right path. There are lots of different ways you can do this, but I'm concerned we're going down a path which I can't see too many redeeming features on. I mean, I've been trying to work out, is there a strategy behind nearly all the players that we're linked with being 27, 28? And I guess one argument could be that we've seen what happens to Southampton. When you try and build young, it often ends badly, or it mm. certainly can be a, a really tough few years whilst you, whilst you bed in. And maybe Fulham are just going for like a constant, make sure we're okay for now, short-term approach. But I guess the worry of that is eventually that will that will buckle. Yeah, obviously you don't want to do what Southampton did. I'm not <laughs> suggesting that they should, we should use their you know their system and their model. I'm suggesting that you can bed in. I, I think they over-indexed too far the other way, if you will, and it left them without any real semblance of leadership on the pitch and anyone to dig things out when times got tough. But I still think there's an element of could you bring one or two even that, young players in. And, and then we talk about different pathways for the academy. The fact that Luke Harris's lone move to Exeter on the final day of the transfer window was basically barred because we were too worried about the squad being too thin. What does that say to him? Because suddenly he's gone from potentially having a starring role at a team who are doing really well at the start of the season in League One to basically being a bit part player at best. I think, for Fulham this season because we've seen that there is a reticence to, to trust his physicality in senior games. And that's why I'm struggling with because suddenly now his pathway has changed. Someone that we were all really excited about, Luke Harris, someone that we think that could genuinely be a star of the future. But he also needs to be given the opportunities to make that work for him. And we've obviously seen Jay Stansfield went out to Exeter he had a bit of a mixed campaign, but obviously ended in, in real triumph. He's gone to Birmingham. He hasn't taken him long to settle in there, scoring that winner against Plymouth in his debut game. And suddenly this year, he's going to have a year in the championship. And if he flies, there is plenty of reason to believe that you can go, cool, maybe Jay Stansfield's ready. I don't know where we stand on that in terms of Luke Harris. And I think that the fact that he's still here when that loan move looked perfect feels like it's poor squad management that has driven the elements of that. And, and that, you know, all of this put together worries me. I guess it's just a constant battle between worrying about now and worrying about the future. And it kind of feels like we've kind of made this season tough because we've not signed some of the right players, but we've got even tougher years ahead because as you say, Polina is going to go. Like that is, it feels like the most done deal. I don't know if it will happen in January, I think that there's a chance that Fulham might be able to just say, look, it's January. But then again, I thought about, about deadline day and um, we kind of entertained it. So I, I feel like you can't predict it now. But also next season, potentially no silver, a squad a year older, big players kind of wanting to move on and, and, and get an approach. I mean, there is a lot of heat right now on 
both of the Khans, obviously yeah. Tony Khan and his position of director of football and so much footage coming out of him being promoting wrestling shows on transfer deadline day, et cetera, et cetera. And, and Shahid coming under uh, a, a great deal of scrutiny as well, I think for his overseeing of the projects that we know that Shahid doesn't get involved in transfers and stuff, but ultimately he is the captain of the ship. And, and there's a lot of talk about potential sale. I'm not convinced that the Khans will do anything to sell Fulham until that Riverside stand is open. That's part of my thing. I feel like, yes, I can see a lot of the logic, but I feel like that's the big thing that Khan wanted to come in and do. He wants to build the Riverside. And I feel like there's no way he will let that asset go until that pool is open. He's dipped his bollocks in. And he's enjoyed the health club for at least a year. I just cannot see him selling up before that's completed. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. I, I just think that the Riverside stand has become a bit of a sort of grey ghost hanging over all of us. Yes, it's a really nice stand. But equally, the fact that it's obviously been delayed time and time again, there have been major issues with the construction companies. There are people paying £3,000 for a season ticket. I mean, I don't know who they are, but there are people paying £3,000 in there for a season ticket when the entire under under bit of the stand is still chipboard, temporary. Have you been, have you, have you been under there this season? No. I was there for the Spurs game. I honestly, I thought like, because I went again for the Leeds game last year in the Riverside and it was bad then, but I was like, okay, well, it's been like seven months now. Must be better. It's absolutely unchanged. Yeah, I went to I went to have a nose around at half time in the Norwich game, at, in the Tottenham game, and it was like, oh, so we're just still here, and I, and I was like, you know, that's hanging over us. And I think that look, it's one thing if you want to pay three thousand pounds for a season ticket at Fulham, then you know, on your head be it, as far as I'm concerned. But you know, if you are offering people a premium experience, in inverted commas then you have to offer them a premium experience. That's a missed sale of, of something. And what I don't kind of understand is that, you know, there's so much interest being put on the Riverside sand. And, and look, the reconstruction, the expansion of the ground, all of those things, great. But if the thing that's hanging over the club, the cloud hanging over the club is all based around this, and I don't know if it is, I'm just speculating here, then the reconstruction of a stand that most of us will never sit in because it's too expensive being the kind of thing that's holding the club back again in inverted commas is bizarre because that's something that as fans, we should be like, hang on, you know, what, what's going on here? What, what are we trying to achieve? What's the point of all of this? And I, at the moment, I, I've got to be honest, I, I'm really struggling with it. I, I, there is so much going on that confuses me around the club, around the, the structure of how things are organized at hierarchical level around what power the manager has and what he doesn't have. And look, I'm a great believer in the idea that you have to have an entire synergy about how things work. I don't think that when Brighton scouted Moises Caicedo, they were like, what do you reckon about Mo this Moises Caicedo chapa Independiente del Valle, Graham? What do you reckon? I think they brought a, a real team and went, this is why we really like this kid from Ecuador. This is why we want to bring him in. These are the you know, the, the things we think he will bring to the team and it goes around a panel and everyone sits there and goes, yeah, okay, that all makes sense. And at that price point seems very reasonable. There just doesn't seem to be any of that kind of synergy 
You know, and, and you can't expect Marco Silva to be out watching every player that Fulham are interested in. It's just not feasible with a job as a coach where day by day you have to be on the training pitch. You can expect him to watch things that you bring before him and show him, you know, fact files and understand the tape and, and all of these things, bring scout reports, tie it all in together. I, but that synergy just seems to be the thing that for me is completely lacking. Our, our strategy is scattergun. The replacements that we were looking at in, in profile for Polina worried me because I don't think they're Polina type players. And there's so much about this that you go, okay, what did Fulham want last summer? And the two defensive midfielders linked were Almaraz Ratti from Braga and Trapolina from Sporting Club de Portugal. And I think that when you kind of put those two things together, you go, all right, fine. So there was obviously some sort of similar profile in those two players. And I remember writing a report about it and they were relatively stylistically similar. Mizrati is a slightly better controller of, of tempo of possession. And Polina is, is a better physical presence. But you can see why there was both players linked. So this year, when Fulham thought they might lose Polina, why did the conversation not open back up? And it's not Braga didn't want to sell because Leon had a bid accepted for Al Masrati on deadline day. So the fact is that there just seems to be no sort of cohesion between any of the parts. And that, I think, is the thing that worries me the most. Yeah, it feels like in some areas we're doing it well. Like, and there's some signings that I still think are really smart. Like, I, I think the Calvin Bassey, you know, little bit of succession planning for Tim Ream is is really smart. So in, they can do it in some areas. It's just like, but up front, no. Defensive midfield, no. Like, I don't understand why it's done in some areas and, and, and not in others. Um, we've got so many questions um, on this kind of topic. So we'll get back into some of the transfer stuff in just a second. Um, I just thought quickly we should talk about Mohamed Al-Fayed, uh, yes. who died on Friday. Well, actually he died on Wednesday, but the news of his death was announced on Friday. And look, Mohamed Al-Fayed is one of those people who changed Fulham forever. And Mohamed Al-Fayed was not perfect, but Mohamed yeah. Al-Fayed did so much for the club and changed it unrecognizably. Without him, it's impossible to know where Fulham would be right now. I don't think that Fulham would still, I remember having this debate, I think on TalkSport, where someone said, oh, Fulham would be in League Two without Mohamed Al-Fayed. I was like, there might've been someone else eventually that would have come and bought Fulham. Like, there was there was opportunity there. It's not like it wouldn't have gone under. But Mohamed Al Fayed came in and he was not perfect. And his true intentions for Fulham will never exactly know. But actually, what he did in the end, whether it was for the right reasons or the wrong reasons, he transformed this club. And I only really have good memories of of Al Fayed's tenure as as chairman of Fulham. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that you, you kind of nailed it there. He changed my football supporting life forever. I, I don't really remember a time before Al Fayed. Um, and, and I think that, you know, the, the, my first memories of Fulham are those amazing years rocketing up the leagues, you know, and that culminated in obviously that, that 2001 win of what is now the championship. That's kind of my real opening full of memories and so he's kind of inextricably linked with everything I remember about the club and I, I remember when he sold the club being like wow I don't know anything but 
the Al-Fayed era. Mm. And obviously it's been a pretty rocky 10 years since that. And I think you just look back to those years and, and, and obviously football was very different. So I'm not suggesting that there's necessarily any, any comparison there. But that ability to take a side who was struggling, you know, who obviously had just been promoted when, when he took over in 1997 um, and then kind of just sort of kicked onwards and said, I'm going to get to the Premier League in, in five years, obviously achieved that goal in four. And, and just the fact that he was able to do that. And, and look, we talk about the Roman Abramovich deal at Chelsea sometimes in just sort of wider footballing circles. I think Alfie's impact on Fulham was as big, if not bigger, than Abramovich's impact on Chelsea. Now, obviously, those are slightly different stratospheres, if you know what I mean. But actually, in terms of the, the turnover of the club and the, you know, he also had some pretty revolutionary ideas, right? He basically pushed for what we now know as the WSL back when he made Fulham's ladies at the time the most, the, the first professional women's football team in England. He had some pretty wild ideas. He went to the 1999 World Cup, Women's World Cup. And he came back and he was like, this is the future. And you know what? In many ways, he was absolutely right. And yeah. I just think that when you kind of look back at some of these things and some of it, it all gets washed off sometimes with the kind of chaos of the end. But I will never be anything but grateful to him for what he did to Fulham. He was a very, very... Very good chairman. Yeah. I, I wonder sometimes what we would have made of Alfired, maybe if things like the internet and podcasts and social media widely was more ubiquitous when, when yeah. Alfired w- was owner. I mean, there were some things that like, I never, I can never get over the horrific plans he had for Craven Cottage when we moved to Loftus Road. Like the design of that stadium, the knocking down of the cottage, building that basically dumping the Medeski um, by the Thames was, was an awful idea. Like he, yeah. he wasn't perfect by any stretch of the imagination for us. And I think there was always that rumor that his real true intention was to try and make money off of Craven Cottage because so many before him have wanted to do that because of the, the price of the land. That, and that and many will, and many will after many will after. Yeah. But by hook or by crook, Alfayed did just about make mostly the right calls um, for for Fulham, and um, yeah, uh, a sad day uh, that uh, that he has died, and no doubt there'll be some uh, big tributes to him at the losing game. Right, we're going to take a break there. In part two, I chat to Greg Crutwell, the Hollywood actor and Fulham fan. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This season, we're pleased to announce that the Thursday Club is sponsored by Green King Sport, where football is more than a game. Green King Sport venues are showing every single televised Fulham fixture over the 23-24 season. And with more than 900 sports pubs across the UK, it doesn't matter whether you're based in Fulham or Falmouth, you can catch every single minute of the action. 
Keep an eye out during the season for events, offers, content and competitions that put you closer to the action. Now, Fulham might not be on the TV for the first few games of the season, but if you're not at Craven Cottage for the first few weeks, make sure you catch the rest of the Premier League action on TNT and Sky Sports at your local Green King Sports Pub. Part two of the Fulhamish podcast is Sammy here and I'm joined by an actor who has starred in numerous Hollywood movies alongside some of Tinseltown's most famous stars. He's also a huge Fulham fan and he's just released a new podcast called Hollywood and Fulham. It's memoirs about his two loves that I just mentioned. Greg Crutwell, welcome to Fulhamish. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Anything Fulham is great to be on. Oh, amazing. Well, look, um, hugely exciting that uh, you've uh, you've released this uh, podcast. I had a little bit of a listen earlier and um, it is mainly kind of your memoirs talking about uh, the two parts of your life, which uh, seemingly are the, are the biggest parts, um, your, your career in Hollywood and also your love of Fulham FC. So um, maybe give us a little bit of a synopsis of, uh, of what people can expect if they listen. Yeah, I mean, my two, I'm a sports fanatic first out and um, I love any sport, but obviously football's my favourite. And Fulham, I've supported Fulham since 1970. And, um, you know, the club is burnt into my soul. But I'm also passionate about the arts. I, I was an actor for a long time and, of course, yeah, went across um, in the mid-90s and worked out in Hollywood. Since then, I've become a writer and director and started my own production company, which uh, with a remit to make sports-related drama and documentaries. But I, I wrote a memoir um, about my life, kind of relating it to football. And there was part of that was um, my experiences going to Hollywood as an actor. And I decided that I wanted to do something, hopefully, that's a little bit different about being an actor out there, but also tallying it with my you know, passionate support of Fulham FC. Well, I listened to uh, the episode that you just released. Interesting to hear uh, the stories of um, yourself and uh, fellow Fulham actor, Mr. Hugh Grant. Uh, you're the same age. You were uh, breaking through into into the scene at the same time. What are your memories of um, kind of growing up alongside Hugh Grant and being the kind of two actors at the club? Yeah, it's a strange experience. I mean, I've never actually worked with him. I worked with his former wife, um, Liz Hurley. But um, yeah, when I got to Hollywood, I mean, Hugh Grant was already, you know, he was pretty big out there. You know, everyone behind the scenes was telling me that I was going to be bigger than Hugh Grant, you know, which seemed <laughs> ludicrous and was ultimately ludicrous. But um, at the time, you know, um, yeah, it, it was just, it was very, very surreal. But uh yeah, I mean, it was, uh, I suppose, you know, for a, for a, for a, mo- a brief moment, I sort of wondered and thought, oh, my gosh, would I, I, here we are. Wouldn't this be really weird? Two Fulham supporters out in Hollywood if we were both kind of movie megastars. But, you know, alas and alack, it didn't happen. Hey, look, I looked at your IMDb. You've still been in uh, in plenty of uh, incredible movies um, d- during your time. So when you were in Hollywood, I imagine you must have spoken to fellow actors and directors in the 90s and that you told them you supported Fulham Football Club. Now I think you might get a response where people might know about Fulham because the Premier League in the USA is is so huge as we uh, witnessed firsthand um, going out there this summer for, for the tour. But I imagine back in the 90s, there'd have been a lot of full what? Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, of course, you know, 
that's life, isn't it? Everyone expects you to support Chelsea or Man United or Liverpool or Arsenal or whatever. But, you know, I, one of the things I'm most proud of in my life is that I support a small club. And I mean, a, I mean, I'll say a small club, let's say a medium sized club. But, yeah. you know, I, I don't want to be a glory hunter. I don't want to support a big club. I love everything about Fulham. I mean, I was born just down the road from Fulham. So I could legitimately, in terms of locale, have supported Chelsea or Fulham, but I was never interested in Chelsea. You know, it was always Fulham for me. But yeah, in Hollywood, obviously, you mentioned Fulham. And only if you're a proper football aficionado did you know who they are. But it is amazing. Even back in the 90s, around the world, how many people, you know, I was always genuinely surprised at how many people did know about Fulham. I mean, obviously... Some people hark way back to the 75 Cup final and all that. And, but um, as I say, I'm, I, I don't care whether people know about Fulham or not. All that I care is that Fulham is my club and, you know, I love them with a passion. So um, how often do you go uh, nowadays? Uh, where, where do you sit uh, whenever you do go? Um, well, at the moment, I've got a, a season ticket in the Johnny Haynes stand. I did have one in the Hammersmith end before that. I mean, since I was a kid, I, um, you know, I've been all over the place, either in the Hammersmith end or in the Johnny Haynes. I like being with the traditional Fulham people, you know, which I consider my family. There was a, quite a while. I mean, I managed to get to about 32 games last season. But for quite a few years, I, 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 although I had season tickets, I founded and ran a grassroots football club for 21 years, and um, which actually took up a lot of my time because I was the first team manager and um, so, you know, getting to Saturday games was always difficult. If it wasn't on a Saturday, I could rejig things and go along. But, but for a while, it was difficult. But I stepped back from that this year. And so uh, last season, which, you know, was a great season to do that, because obviously, you know, going on the road with Fulham last season was great fun. What have your general thoughts been on the uh, on the past couple of years, the, the rise under Marco Silva, the kind of the end of the yo-yo days, hopefully, uh, as long as things go all right this season? So what have you been your favourite memories from the past few years? Um, I, I mean, I'm slightly worried this season about, you know, what's going on and the, obviously the frustrations that Marco Silva's had. But for me, the season before last season was pretty special because... Fabio Cavaglio, who obviously has now gone to Liverpool and is out on loan at Leipzig, was a boy that, you know, I and we bought through at Ballum, the club I ran. And so, mm. you know, I coached Fabio for three years and I did the deal that got him into Fulham. And um, so I'm very close to him and very close to his family. So for me to see a kid that I discovered on Clapham Common as an 11-year-old, then go to Fulham, which is the club I support, and then be the first Ballon player to play in the Premier League was just, I mean, honestly, you could have, you know, I could have died then and I would have been happy. You know, it was amazing. And obviously, you know, I would love him to have stayed last season and done what Pereira's done. But obviously when Liverpool comes calling, you know, it's very, you know, it's very difficult to turn it down. So the last two or three years, you know, supporting Fulham have been pretty special. But to be honest with you, I've loved every minute of it since, you know, since I've been going there, as I say, when I started with 
when we beat Bradford City back in 1970 and I was there and the score was 5-0. And on the acting side, um, you know, you talk in this podcast and it's 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 kind of a, a throwback to a yesteryear. The golden years, it feels like uh, listening to it. It feels like um, probably if you went to Hollywood now, it would be a, a, a very different experience. What was it like for, you know, a young English lad going out there trying to crack America? Because on one hand, it sounds hugely exciting. On the other hand, it sounds hugely daunting. Yeah, I mean, it was both of those. But I think, you know, if you get an opportunity to go, you've got to embrace it. I mean, you can only go out there as an actor, or you could then, and probably the same now if you have a calling card. And I'd done a a film that created quite a stir out there over here called Naked, which was a film with the director, Mike Lee. And I had one of the leading roles in that, and I knew it had done well out there. So I decided to get out there and see what happens. And it, it was daunting. But, like, on the films I did, I did Two Days in the Valley, I was the only Brit on the entire cast and crew of a Hollywood movie, which was pretty extraordinary. And then I did a film called George of the Jungle, which was a big Disney hit. And again, I was the only Brit on the cast and crew of that. And, and you know, to go out there, I mean, you know, it is mecca for actors and movies, Hollywood, to go out there and be a part of that. And, um, you know, it was just, was it's something that most actors dream of. And and I got a really good taste of it. I mean, I loved every minute of it. I debated whether to move out there lock, stock and barrel, but I've got four young kids growing up in London. And in the end, I decided to kind of put a stop to it. And I wanted to be on the other side of the camera as well, right and direct. So I decided to kind of park the Hollywood um, experience and just hold on to it and come back here and work from here. And of course, that meant that I could go to Craven Cottage, which is obviously, if you're living in America, that's one of the big things you miss. Because although you can watch everything, you know, on TV, there's nothing like really being there. And there is no ground like Craven Cottage. No, you can uh, you can transport most of your life out to uh, another country. But sadly, you, it's very difficult to uh, to transport Fulham Football Club uh, to, to where you live. Um, I mean, obviously, now you are a writer, a director. I feel like we could potentially make a Fulham movie. I mean, we've certainly got the caliber of stars. We've mentioned Hugh Grant, Margot Robbie, Sam Smith could do the soundtrack. Is there, is there anything that we could uh, make happen maybe in the future? Some sort of uh, movie, TV, drama, whatever, uh, set around Fulham. It feels like maybe you're the man to pull it off if anyone is. Well, listen, I'm, I'm open to anything. And as I said, well, I'd love to do that. Yeah. I mean, Lily Allen could do the soundtrack, you know, if not sounds oh, good. Well, I think she's, we, we now think she sports Chelsea because of her really? husband. So yeah. Oh, I think we've, we've, that is soul destroying. Yeah. What, no, I think oh, we've lost Lily. going on there? Yeah. Well, no, well then bin her for sure. But, um, <laughs> no, I mean, but yeah, listen, I mean, I, I'm open to anything. If you initiate the discussions, let's go. All right. Well, this can be the uh, the thinking hub on the Fulhamish podcast. If anyone's got any uh, ideas, uh, a plot line, or anything that we can uh, that we can work with, and incredible about the Fabio Carvalho story, I did not know that that was uh, something that you'd done prior to meeting you today. So, what a meteoric um, discovery um, that was. So, um, yeah. Well, thank you. I guess is the is the first thing for, for for finding Fabio in that fantastic season. But also, make sure you check out Greg's podcast. It's called Hollywood and Fulham. It's on all major podcast platforms, Apple, Spotify, all the usual ones. Uh, and there's plenty of episodes already to tuck into. Greg, thanks so much for jumping on Fulhamish. Fascinating uh, to hear about uh, your life and times and uh, your uh, relationship with the club and uh, best of luck with the podcast. Thank you ever so much. It's great to be here and let's hope Fulham have a cracking season. 
part three of the Fulhamish podcast. Sammy and Jack here. Thank you very much to Greg Crutwell, his podcast, Hollywood and Fulham. All episodes are out now and we have shared a link in the description of this podcast. Jack, I have so many questions. I like, it's honestly stressing me out. Uh, They're in the inbox. Hello at fullamish.co.uk. Feel free to add to the pile. Um, We're going to try and get through some of them now. So a bit of a mailbox special to to end the podcast with today. Uh, I'm going to start with this one from TJ Fogarty, um, who we met. Shout out TJ all day. Yeah. Uh, we met out in Philadelphia. He runs the uh, Fulham Philadelphia Supporters Club. Um, And I'm going to try and paraphrase this email because it's extremely long, but he says, hi all right now. I feel very frustrated with the club. I just want to put my thoughts down in writing. You may agree with some points and disagree with others. I feel kind of like a lunatic calling into an American sports radio show right now. So apologies if this comes off as a rant. Uh, He says, number one, lack of incoming business. Marco said we needed more signings on deadline day to address all the players we lost. Overall in the window, we've lost Duffy, Solomon, James, Mitro, Niskins, Mbabu and Cedric. We've bought in Raul, Adama, Bassi, Bender, Castagna, Awobi and Balotori. It feels like we've bought in a few stop gaps for death with only Raul, a definite downgrade from Mitro, Bassi and maybe Castagna and Awobi challenging for starting positions. Uh, There's no backup plan for obvious departures. We knew that Mitro was leaving for two months and then on to Polinia. It was so obvious that we weren't going to find anybody in the 12 hours after we let him go to Munich. Why did we even let him go there? And then the rest of the outgoings, why are we set to lose out on 10 million for Tosin? We should have had a buyer for now. We've had three months to sort it. And he's going to sign a pre-contract in four months. And that's that. Where does Rodak go? What about Luke Harris? What about Ty Francois? He then says, Balotori, really? Worst case scenario, he's not good. Jedi stays first choice. And we've wasted a loan that we could have got another player in. The good, he says, he likes Awobi and Bassi and Adama's pace is a good asset to bring on late in the game. I suppose Castagna is a good player as well and a depth option. And... Then he goes on to Tony. He says, no other window has made it so apparent that we need someone in his job full time. It's great that Ali Mack can call him whenever. It would be better if he could just walk down the hall. There's a reason Tony isn't GM of the Jaguars. He's not qualified. It's great that he wants to play Jerry Jones with our team, but he's not qualified either. It's clear that this team doesn't have a vision or a plan to go about achieving that. That's the director of football's job. He then says, if you've read all of this, congrats. It's obviously too long to read on the pod. Um, I just felt like I needed a medium to scream into the void and that was it still think we're staying up but i fear we took a step backwards in this window and breathe jack <laughs> yeah yeah i mean th- there's a lot to digest there but i think in the main part that it, it seems pretty fair um i agree with him pretty much dead on about about signings um and look i, I do think there's a real importance of, of having people under the same roof talking in in meetings having discussions that's where you build the synergy that I was talking about in part one between all of these factions that all slightly want different things. And I think that you can see that across various clubs. You know, obviously we saw Tim Stighton come in at West Ham United this summer. And to begin with, there was some real tension between Stighton and David Moyes in terms of the players that Moyes wanted, again, the players that Stighton wanted. And actually towards the end of the window, they've clearly began to sit down, find common ground. And actually, I think the West Ham, who I'd originally tipped for relegation and struggling, have gone out and really sort of not on brand, spent the Declan Rice money really well. They've reinvested in various areas of the squad. They've built up different bits. They've also put in some, some steel in that midfield. 
suddenly I'm like, okay, that's what happens when you have that relationship, when you have that ability to make things work. And, you know, seeing Stijden flying around, flying to Ajax to convince Mohamed Kadus to join the club, seeing him fly to Rio to try and convince Yuri Alberti, that one fell through. But the point being that you can see the activity. And I think that that's kind of crucial because when you're looking at that, you're looking at a singular focus and they've been able to really strengthen the squad in a way that I didn't think that they had in them. And, and that, for me, is, is how it's probably supposed to work. It feels like, to quote Logan Roy in Succession, are we serious people? <laughs> are, we, are we actually doing this properly and seriously? And, and it was interesting reading Peter's article yesterday in The Athletic and kind of reiterated it. And it is kind of mad that we've all learned to kind of accept that our director of football also runs a wrestling franchise like that's and look it's so hard because is he a figurehead is he actually a director of football how is he involved but I think now and maybe also I kind of I didn't accept it but when we're in the championship you're like well we're a championship club can we expect everything but now we're a Premier League top 10 club I feel like we need to start acting like it a little bit and this role just is not acting like it. And it is actually just mind blowing when you, when you break it down, but we've learned to live with it, almost accept it, that this is, this is the norm. Yeah, it it is. And and look, there are different, it is worth caveating that different things work for different clubs, different people. Not everyone is doing the same thing. And that's what makes the game interesting. It's what makes it, you know, different. And if everyone was doing exactly the same thing, then we'd have the teams who, we have the most money winning all the time. I mean, it happens most of the time anyway, but there are exceptions to the rule. And and I think that it's about being smart and it doesn't always have to be, you know, I, I'm not asking the club to put Roy Hodgson in here because I, I, I think that you only have to look down the road at Phil Giles, who's director of football at, at Brentford, who is a stats graduate from the University of Newcastle, who grew up as a Newcastle season ticket holder, but, you know, has no more kicked a ball around than the next man on the street. And yet is running one of the most successful operations in, I would say, European football right now in terms of recruitment and, and profiling players. And that's my worry. It's not necessarily about the whole, oh, it has to be a, a, a football man in, to use the, the, the terminology that, that's sometimes thrown around. I, d- I don't think those things are necessarily true anymore. I think that if you have the right kind of ability to read into numbers, to look into those things. And clearly there's an element of that because True Media is clearly a, a huge player in the NFL scene and what they've achieved over there. But I, I, I just worry that there is just an element of Phil Giles is at Brentford, you know, 24-7. It's a, it's a, and he's spoken about this at length on, on various podcasts about, you know, the hours he puts in, the, the data he tracks, all of those things. And as you say, we're unsure what the, the rules are and, and the lines and kind of boundaries are on, on, on figureheads and people working underneath it. And I think the same probably goes for, for Ali Mack, right? Who is, is, is up there in terms of CEO and is kind of not supposed to be wearing lots of hats and kind of, also kind of delegating to lots of people with different hats. And and that makes it very confusing to kind of understand truly what the, what the drill is, what, what the actual hierarchy is behind the scenes. And, and I think that that's the thing that we're, where we're kind of falling down right now. 
Um, for a bit of balance, let's read this email from Andrew Sherman. It says, Fulhamish, love the podcast. I'm prepared to be pilloried here, but was the transfer window all that bad? Fulham added depth on the back line with Bassey, who is a long-term replacement for Ream, Castagna, who can cover both outside back positions, and the left back on loan. Awobi will push Andreas in the midfield, and obviously it's great that the team kept Polina for now. Adama is an improvement on Dan James on either flank, and we kept Willian. Fulham spent more than seven teams and fans of teams like Luton or even Everton would probably gladly swap windows. The outgoings were largely players who weren't going to play or improve the first choice lineup. If you ignore the gaping Mitrovic sized hole, the team looks stronger. Obviously missing Mitra and not finding a top level striker to replace him is a major issue. But the histrionics on social media are a little much. Last season, Mitro missed more than a third of our league games, scored 10 non-penalty goals and missed a lot of penalties, and Fulham still finished 10th. Rao's early play has been encouraging. Is he as good as Mitro? No, but after a promising start to the season post-Mitro, and we have 15 games before the January window to see if Jimenez, (laughs) he actually accentuated that uh, pronunciation, can recapture some of his former production or Silva finds a solution within the current roster. And if it doesn't work out, Kotas Mastroglu is still playing somewhere. That's from Andrew. Um, I do like that balance. And, and that's yeah, what yeah. I've been fighting I'm not, I'm with over the last few I'm not going to pillory that. That's a perfectly reasonable thought through logical opinion. I, I, I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and be like, no, no chance. That's wrong. I, I think there are some big caveats. We're like ignoring the massive Mitrovic shaped hole in the team, I think is a big thing to ignore. And whilst I agree with him that Raul's early play has been encouraging, I do wonder just how much Fulham are going to be able to adapt in that, yes, Mitrovic scored 10 non-penalty goals last season. I agree. Um, But I think the point being that the entire fulcrum of the attack was based around what he brought to the table. And I was talking about this on, on BBC Radio London yesterday. It's not just about what Mitrovic brings in terms of goals. It's also the aura he carries. And the fact that every time a defender went up against Alexander Mitrovic, one, they knew they were in for an absolute hell of a scrap. And two, there is that element of fear because you're like, wow, I I know that that guy can pull something out of nowhere. I know that he is a massive presence. I know that he's going to be at me all game. And all of that, I think, contributes to the fact that other players were able to come out and shine. Willian, I think, in particular, where those operations where Mitrovic would be sort of peeling off the centre-back and making sure that there was a little bit of cover there, which allowed Willian to square up his full-back one-on-one quite a lot. And it opened up a lot of opportunities for Fulham. And I, I think that, you know, the players like Andreas, players like Willian, all thrived off Mitrovic. Now, that doesn't mean that they can't thrive off Raul. But I think that there is more than just losing Mitrovic's 10 non-penalty goals. I think there is a massive element of if you build a side to operate around a functioning attack that is basically based on one man, you have to profile him and profile his replacement in a similar way. And I just don't buy that as as a role deal. I don't buy him as a similar type replacement. Do you know, I mean, like, I feel like, especially in the City game, I was really impressed with some of Raul's hold-up play. Like, it was brilliant at times. And, like, you know, he sets up a chance that Luke Harris should 100% have gobbled up to be 4-2. And it's just fantastic work in the box, quick feet, found a man. And it's you you can't blame Raul that Luke Harris is a bit inexperienced and and slashed at a shot that that was tamely into the um, hands of Edison. Like, I think... And, you know, obviously it was his brilliant run and... um, Flick for for the goal that that led to it. I do. I actually worry more about the goals. That's actually my concern. I feel like Raúl is bringing others into play a bit, like Mitrovic did. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that his link-up play is good. I'm, I'm not, I'm not taking away from that. I just don't think he has the same aura. I don't think he has the same defenders going, oh, for God's sake, every time he steps on the pitch. And I think that Mitrovic had that. And I think every single time someone came up against Fulham last year, there was a bit like, oh God, how do we stop the supply to Mitrovic? How do we stop the crosses into the box? And it opens up things for different people. It opens up different elements. I don't think there's going to be that much of that. I don't think teams are going to be like, we better not let him cross this year because I, I just can't see us having the same kind of element. And all that does is it focuses in then teams being able to defend through the middle, deal with those link-up plays, deal with that kind of centralised attacking zone. And I wonder if there's going to be as much space for the likes of Willian, Harry Wilson to exploit as they would have had if Alexander Mitrovic was there. So that, that's my that's my concern with it. But look, as I say, I think that these points were perfectly reasonable and perfectly valid. There's there's plenty to, you know, to get into there. I, I, there's a couple of, I, I'm not convinced that Adama Traor is an upgrade on Dan James. Uh, I don't necessarily think that matters because I think that obviously we saw Dan James play a relatively bit part role last mm. season and and I would imagine we're going to see Adama in a relatively similar kind of minutes space this season but you know do you think because I think Adama's playing every game I, I don't know if it's, I think he'll come on nearly whereas Dan James it was definitely not the case last year I feel like Adama will play in every match I, I just think opinion. that there will be an element of yes okay fine if, if, if you're chasing things you're making trying to make things happen on the counter fine but you know, we, we did see the good and the bad, I think, in that Tottenham game where there were moments where he was obviously trying to break through. There were moments where he was he was getting in behind and the, the final product was just not there. And it's more it's, it's kind of more of the same. Now, Adama came in on a free. So I'm not slating that deal because I think on a free transfer, you go, yeah, all right, we'll take a punt there, especially with someone like Harry Wilson basically being first choice in that position that we know and love. So... I think that punt itself is fine, but we're we're kind of looking at things and going, I, I don't know how much the squad is improved. And and look, we talked about the Bassey thing. Good long-term replacement. Great. I'm, I'm with you on that. But this window, we're, we're kind of stuck in a place where, well, Bassey's come in. How much does he play? Because Tim Ream is the, clearly the defensive leader in this team, the man who organises the back four. Next to him, I think Diop looks better when Ream is, is by him, usually. Um, now the Arsenal game and the Arsenal game, the Brentford game might might throw spanners in that theory, and maybe we're seeing a changing of the guard. But the way that I see it, I think Diop usually is a little bit more composed and controlled when Tim Ream is alongside him, and so therefore, what, what do you do with Bassi? The fact that you know there was another left back brought in when Castagna can play both sides and Bassi can play left back, and we've used a lone spot there on on Fredo Balotore who turned Fulham down earlier in the summer and clearly was not given any other better offers. Strange. Um, mm. Now Marco did say he wanted left back, so at some point you've got to go. Okay, the manager has, has explicitly said he wants a left back in. We've got you one. Fine, no problem. I just, you know, I feel like some of the things on deadline day and towards the end of the window, all just felt like. You know, that I'm, I'm almost not looking at the same squad as you. Like, mm. I can't look at that squad and think, yeah, the thing we really need here is a left back. It, it doesn't make any sense to me. And and so the, when that comes into play, you're kind of looking and going, so what, the holes in the squad are there. You know, we are looking at different players to, to fill different roles. I, again, I like the Awobi signing. I think it's a good deal. I think that as long as he's playing relatively centrally, be able to play eight, 10, I'm, I'm not wild on him on the wing, but, you know, he can do a job. 
those things are important. And and he's a versatile player that Silva clearly likes and, and someone that he's, he's worked with before. Great. Fantastic. Delighted. But you've also paid, you know, 22 million. He's in a top five signings in club history for a 27 year old who has been good at Everton, but without, you know, setting the place on fire. When I think that there are different options. With one year left on his deal as well. Like uh, one. It's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. That was what I couldn't get. I mean, we were talking about like Tosin going a year on it left in his contract for 10. And I thought that was ambitious. Everton must have been, especially in the position they're in financially. I mean, I, I, and then obviously they'll be thinking in the short term, oh my God, we're weaker for sending a player like Alex Awobi. And we yeah. didn't have that, that much in the first place. But I, there's no way they could have turned down that kind of money. And then... You know, we seem to be penny pinching on other players. And look, it seems like from Peter's article, players like Hudson Adoy, Damari Gray, that we were linked with, Silver didn't want them. So it feels like there is loggerheads here between all departments. We're obviously only getting scraps of information. We don't exactly know, but that the strategy doesn't seem very coordinated. I think that's what we can definitely agree on is that Silver's obviously got things that he wants to do um, and the club and Alistair McIntosh, Tony Carr and half others. And look, Marco's not helping the situation either by not signing a contract. That's also like, I I can understand it from his point of view, why he hasn't signed one, but he's not making it any easier for Fulham to make big long-term signings when he won't commit to the club either. So that's definitely not helping the situation. One thing I just wanted to ask, the only maybe positive of not signing a striker is a potential pathway for Jay. And look, yeah. he started well at Birmingham. It's probably too early to say. Do you think that's coming to any kind of thinking? I don't know. I don't know, especially because pretty much whenever he's been used under Marco Silva, he's played wide and been used to sort of kick inwards from the wing. So it is a slightly different thing. He obviously played in a front two quite a lot of the time at Exeter. So we're not 100% sure what he looks like as a lone striker in these systems. There's there's plenty of question marks. Look, if, if he goes and shines on loan at Birmingham and he's given that opportunity, then fantastic. Because I think we all agree we would love to see Jay Stansfield thrive and, 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 and shine at Fulham. But I think that that's a big gamble, if that is the case. And sometimes gambles like that pay off. I completely understand. But I still think it's it's a risky strategy, especially in the short term this year, with... Jay out on loan. You know, if Jay Stansfield was still here and they were like, okay, we might give him some minutes and, and get him up to speed. I'd be like, well, okay, fair enough. It's gamble, but at least it's a gamble we're in control of. If Birmingham sat their manager next week, now they're obviously not going to do that because they've started well, but if they sat their manager next week and the next manager decides he doesn't want to, you know, doesn't want Stansfield in the team and he doesn't play until January, then there become question marks over that as well, right? So yeah. I, I would just, on, as a final point to this email, I would just say that it was like teams like Luton and Everton and Sheffield United would swap the R window for theirs. Well, yeah, but I think that all of those teams are in real danger of being relegated. And and I don't think that using the kind of baseline relegation candidates as a, you know, a, a barometer for what a good window is, is pr- probably the most sensible thing that we could do right now. I, I think that we want to be looking at the teams that we finished around last season. You know, those teams in, in the mid-table spots. How many of... Brentford, West Ham would trade their window for ours. You know, that's the question mark I think we should be our Christ, Even Crystal Palace, would you trade Palace's window for ours? I think I, I would trade their window for ours. 
Uh, you know, both lost a talisman. I, I think that they've done yeah. more than, than we have in in terms of making sure that there was there was sensible replacement going on. So when you're looking at those kind of things, I, I wonder that's the kind of the clubs I would be comparing us to, and I don't think I would be. I don't think there would be many of them. You know, outside of the relegation four five, if you include Wolves, who would swap our window for theirs, and I think the Burnley would definitely not swap our window for theirs. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I, I I do think there's a really interesting synergy with Palace at the moment. It's a club that has just always been able to kind of keep its head above water in the Premier League. And I wonder if that's what Fulham almost trying to just basically aim for is to be the next Crystal Palace. Just stay in the league for 10 years without ever having to splash ridiculous amounts of, of cash. I mean, they've done... Okay. I like Lerma. Rob Holding for like 2 million going up to five was maybe the deal of the window. Yeah, safe but, bet, safe pair of hands. Even you know, even the Dean Henderson, and obviously, thing. yeah, Francher. I don't know I too love, much about. I know I, you, I, I'm I, really excited about Mateus Francher, but I, I don't know how much game time he's going to get out of Royal. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, that will probably do for the podcast today. Um, thank you very much for listening. It's been a little bit um, of just uh, Jack and Sammy chew the fat, which I love actually, um, every, every now and again. And, uh, hopefully we've, we've covered as much as, uh, as, as you'd like. Um, there's going to be much more analysis, um, on the way of our window. And obviously this time next week, we'll start pivoting to look ahead to, uh, the Luton game and the palace game and the matches that are coming up. I'm kind of excited maybe for, for this run of games, concentrate a bit more on the football, concentrate a little bit less on transfers. I think it will be nice relief for everyone just to uh, enjoy watching Fulham again and remembering what uh, being a fan of a football club uh, is all about. Um, Jack, thank you very much for today. No, thank you, Sam. It's been a pleasure. I really enjoyed my just sitting here looking at the state of the union with you. Yeah. Uh, On Sunday, we're going to be releasing uh, the Jack and Joe show as a a podcast. Um, You can catch it first on YouTube, of course. Make sure you subscribe to the Fulhamish YouTube channel to get extra uh, Fulham FC content. But we're going to be releasing it as a podcast for you to listen to on Sunday if you prefer just having it in your ears on your way to work. And then this time next week, the Thursday Club will be back. Uh, We're going to be joined by Dean Jones uh, for that one. So it'll be myself, Jack and Dean. Uh, Maybe a bit more transfers chat. There'll probably be some uh, more news coming out in the next week and then looking ahead to that Luton game when football returns. So have a lovely weekend, whatever you're doing. No Fulham, of course. Um, Jack, what are you doing this weekend? I'm going to my 13th wedding of the year or whatever. Um, I've got a complete weekend off, actually. Um, you know what? I'm incredibly know. jealous is my yeah, big takeaway from that. Yeah, I'm not 100% sure what I'll do, but uh, I'll just uh, probably enjoy it. It's, been ni- it's nice weather in the UK at the moment, so maybe I'll just... Uh, I tell you what, it's too it's too yeah. hot to be in tails. That's, uh, that's what I'm going to tell you. Yeah, I'm, uh, I, I'm not envious of you at all, actually. So whatever you're doing this weekend, have a good one. Call me whites. You whites. You whites.